We're starting a new series this quarter on the Psalms. And tonight we're going to look at Psalm 22, which you might or might not be familiar with. But um, each week I kind of want to, before we start, give you a little glimpse into why we're doing the Psalms, why I think they're vital. Uh, the Psalms are essentially God's hymn book. They're the songs that are written um, for God's people. It's basically the book they sang out of. Uh, and, and we still sing out of to a large degree today. But uh, one of the reasons that we're doing the Psalms is because Mike Tyson was right when he said, thanks for a laugh, um, we're talking about Psalms and then there's like no simple segue into talking about a once former great boxer now disgraced. Like that's supposed to feel awkward and disjointed and kind of humorous. So you're supposed to laugh right there. Um, Mike Tyson said this, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And, uh, and what I mean by that is this, and, and I think there's actually a lot of wisdom in that, and I think that is a reason for studying the Psalms. I've been in ministry for eight years now, and the place that I've found myself going to Scripture for myself and also bringing people to more often than anything else is the Psalms. It's the place where we end up going. And the reason why is this, because we can talk abstractly and hear in small groups with friends over a cup of coffee about theology, about religion, about grace, about sin, salvation, Jesus, all these different kind of concepts, and we should. But in those contexts, sometimes it can be a little clinical, a little sanitized, right? And then life hits in certain circumstances, and all of a sudden, that clean theology that we were kind of able to talk through, that was exciting to talk through, those truths, all of a sudden they're jumbled and we don't know what to do because life is hit. Because we get punched in the mouth. And we don't know how to handle our emotions. We, theology we could handle when life wasn't difficult, um, the, the conversations about religion. But then when difficulty comes in and the rush of emotions comes with it, we don't know what to do. And, we, and, and we're shaken in our faith at different times, right? We feel like God doesn't have answers for us. We feel like we weren't prepared uh, for these moments. Um, we don't know what to do. You know, again, you're kind of humming along here at Stanford, figuring out maybe this is a Jesus thing or this Christianity thing. You got it, Jesus, hope, death on the cross, and all that kind of stuff. And then your dad calls and says your mom left your dad. Right? And now those sanitized conversations about Jesus, now all of a sudden you don't, you don't know how to feel anymore. Um, you know, being a Christian, you talk about being secure in Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And then you work hard and do really poorly in the class. And you don't know how to feel about that, how to process that emotion in light of kind of all these conversations you were having, these thoughts you were thinking, and this kind of following Jesus thing you were trying to do, right? In Stanford, the weather's perfect here, life is going well. And you look around and it dawns on you, you're lonely and you have no friends. What are you going to do with that? And I think it's the Psalms, it is the Psalms, that handle the emotional spectrum of life, that give us a guide through all different seasons of emotion. And each week we're going to look through different emotions, positive ones and negative ones, and, uh, and, and there are seasons for each of them. And sometimes we might be talking about one that, you're saying, that you might feel, well, I don't identify with that right now. But I suspect we'll all struggle through all of these emotions at different points. 
these different feelings. And what songs do, the reason they're put down in song, right, God in His infinite wisdom, is that songs actually allow us to process our emotions better than prose does, right? What do you do? Where do you get the strongest feeling? Where do you process feelings the most strongly? In the form of song, right? No one reads a breakup essay, right? You listen to a breakup song that allows you to process your emotions. If you read a process, uh, uh, you know, a breakup essay, like, we need to talk. Like, you need to get in touch with being human. Um, the Psalms deal with sorrow and with grief and insecurity and emptiness and disconnectedness, and they deal with joy and happiness and hope and security and connectedness. But one thing I will say, and I think what you'll see as we try to survey the Psalms is this. The genre that's most represented in the Psalms is lament. Songs of lament. And uh, there, there, are Chris, there are critics of Christian culture that are right when they look at a lot, not all, but a lot of Christian contemporary music and see this kind of saccharine sentimentalism, this kind of fake sweetness. We have this ill-advised tendency uh, to pretend that life is it's pretty and it's cleaned up, but life is not clean and the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, it doesn't teach, the Bible never teaches that if you put forth a reasonable effort to be a virtuous person and take care of your work and responsibility, then things will go well with you. The Bible never teaches that. And that's what we're all dying to believe, right? This is why you're at Stanford, to some degree. If I try to be a decent person and I work hard, then my circum- I should expect favorable circumstances in life. And what happens is, we get punched in the mouth. And all of a sudden our plan has fallen apart and we don't know what to do. And what I hope RUF always is and what we seek to be is a place where we can put the mess of life up on the table and stop saying things like it's not a big deal or I'm over it or, you know, it's okay, it's all good. Alright? Instead, I hope this is a place, I hope there are friendships being cultivated in here and inside this fellowship where we can say, no, no, this thing in my life is a big deal. I think about it constantly. There's a lot of fear inside of me. I'm not okay. I had a plan and I got punched in the mouth and I don't know what to do. Things are not okay. So let's deal with it. In the Psalms, we find a guide through that emotional spectrum of life. And so I'm going to read Psalm 22. It's 31 verses and then we'll look through it. And it begins with words that maybe are familiar to some of you. This is a song written by David, uh, the king of Israel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel, and your father, and you, our fathers, trusted They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. So be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face from Him. But He has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Lord, I thank you for this word, and I thank you that you speak to places in life we didn't know you speak to. And I pray now that you would teach us from your word, that as I fumble through my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own words, that you would be present, your Holy Spirit would be present, dear God that you would open us up, that you would pull out the things that we don't want to deal with, dear Lord, and that you would apply your Holy Spirit and the healing that there is to be had in Jesus and that we would find hope. Be with us, dear God, in your name we pray. Amen. So this text, just jumping right in, it begins with the most troublesome question, the most troublesome sentiment that everybody grapples with, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you are. And it's the big question, maybe you've asked it of God, maybe you ask it of the universe, maybe you ask it of nothing, but we've all asked it. And it begins with why. My God, my God, why? Right? After 9-11, what's everybody, what's the entire media industry about? Trying to find somebody who gives a good answer to why. Right? After the Virginia Tech shooting, why? The Joseph Coney thing, Why? But it's not, also, it's not just big things also, right? It zooms in on our life as well, this question. God, what are your purposes for this situation in my life? Right? We're asking that all the time. I want the details. Why is this here? Why is this present in my life? And again, if you're a Christian or if you're just here and you're, you're kind of checking it out, one, the first thing we have to see in this text is this. This is given to us by God. He says, hey, when you're struggling with why, I have a prayer for you to pray. And it starts with you saying, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? So the first, in in some sense, maybe the first application is this. God's not afraid of tough questions. In fact, he actually gives you tough questions to ask of him. So let's not sentimentalize Christianity Let's let it be as robust and as powerful and as searching and probing as we should expect from a deity. 
And so let's also at the same time be honest with our whys, right? Why am I lonely? This is college. You're supposed to be having a blast. You're supposed to have you know, th- this, this group of people around you where you all have a great time. I've been here for two quarters. I've been here for two years. I'm a grad student. I see other friendships around me. I see other people having this experience. Why am I still lonely? Why, why am I the person that has that kind of college experience? That's not the kind of college experience anybody's supposed to have. Why don't I have close friends? Why don't I have that group? Why is this happening to me in class? I did the work. I put forth the effort. And yet this is the grade. God, why, why is this happening? Why can't I shake these feelings, right? You know? <laughs> we're, we have everything in America. I mean, that's, that's an annoying thing to say. But, but depression's all the more depressing when you're like man we have every this is a beautiful campus this is an amazing education they take care of their students here and why can't I shake these feelings this is supposed to be a happy place right God why was I the person who was abused why am I sick why is there pain in my life that I still can't get to go away and the hardest question of all in all of these is why is it me and not somebody else? Why am I carrying this? Why is this in my life? Why did you choose me to be the subject here? Why am I the only one? Why does, why does everything seem to work out for everybody else? And in the face of those why questions, we can implement a couple of strategies, right? First of all, we can just lie about it. We can just deny it. I'm okay. I'm over it. It's all good. Some of us are carrying very dark things. Many of us are. And we keep kind of reciting this internal mantra, I'm over this. It doesn't control me. I don't have to talk about this. And when the darkness and and the distress, whatever it is you're carrying, when it stays hidden, and when you carry it alone, that's in fact when it has the most power over you. When it defines you the most. It is dying for you to keep saying, this is not a big deal. I can carry this by myself. So we'll deny it, hide it, we'll we'll push it down. Or secondly, we'll we'll self-medicate, right? We'll distract ourselves with work, with entertainment, whatever it is. Just keep my mind somewhere else. I know this is true. This is definitely true of me. Because the most terrifying thing in the world, right, is a large chunk of time without an electronic, without somehow a way to connect to some information that will distract me. Right, sitting in the doctor's office. Is, I went and got Elizabeth's oil changed last week, and I got there and I didn't have my phone. I had to sit for 20 minutes in the Jiffy Lube, and all they had was golf magazines. That's how bad it was. Rather than be alone with my own thoughts, I read golf magazines. I hate golf. No offense, but the golfers. But we're terrified of actually being alone of being unattached from something that can distract us. It might be work, it might be electronics, it could be a lot of different things. The other thing we can do is we can just distance ourselves from everybody else. So another way we self-medicate. This darkness in me is so bad, there's just no way anybody could really relate to me in this. So I'm going to put up my Stanford facade of doing okay, but I'm going to live back here where I really am. So I'll give everybody this facade that they want and they can relate to. But I'm going to create a distance between that facade and who I really am. I can't let anybody come back here, right? 
tonight, what I hope happens in your life, what I hope some of the friendships and fellowships in RUF can be, is a place where you actually get to put all of that out on the table and actually ask, why? Why is this here? And that's the first point. You're allowed to ask that question. God gives you that question to ask. He gives you, he gives, he's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I want you to pray that. I want you to ask that. You're allowed to cry. Why? David wrote this. We're not told the circumstances why. But he's certain, if you, if you know much about King David's story, he's got a lot of reasons to be praying this prayer, to be singing this song. Um, Early in his life, he's anointed to be the king of Israel. He's told before he is the king that he's going to be the king. And the current king goes on a manhunt. And he lives in caves for an extended period of time, David does, on the run. And the current king that's hunting him down is his best friend's father. We have Psalms elsewhere in the book that he writes about just the terror and the difficulty of that situation and how long it lasted. When he becomes king, later in his kingship, his son rapes his daughter. Uh, another son actually overthrows him as king. You're allowed to ask why. David's got a lot of difficult situations to ask why in. You're allowed to ask why. Now we get all, you, you, he kind of explores all the different aspects of that cry, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he doesn't say like, why did this happen? He makes God the active agent in it. God, why are you and the business of cutting me out. You're the activate. Why have you forsaken me? You're the one who brought this in. Right? You're the one doing this. This isn't just happening and you're standing on the sideline. Right? God gives us that prayer. Where are you? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God, do you even hear me? I know all of us. Christian or not, at some point in time have cried to somebody and wondered, are these things called prayers, are they just hitting the corner of my dorm room? Right? That's what he's saying. My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Are my prayers doing anything? Do you hear any of them? God gives you that as a prayer to pray. Verses 6 through 8. I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. People who see me mock me. And they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads by saying, this is what they say, and this is mockery. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights him. Have you ever thought, okay, this feels ridiculous, that I'm claiming this Christianity thing with all these wonderful promises of grace and forgiveness and contentment and resurrection, and it looks ridiculous when I'm suffering this way. Like, how can I be screaming to the world, this God is good, you should follow Him the way I'm trying to follow Him. And then look at my life situation and say, and this is what this God has put in my life. It looks ridiculous. David's saying like, it totally makes sense that people are mocking me over trying to follow you. I look like an idiot. This feels so inconsistent. I'm, I'm claiming these great things about being a Christian, about trying to follow God. And yet, this is the situation in my life? Where's the disconnect? Right? Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This, verse, also in verses 16, the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. 
These are the pictures of David's enemies closing in on him. And it would not be inappropriate for us to think about our circumstances closing in on us, right? These things coming down on us, piling up on us, and it feels like they're going to crush us, right? They seem imposing, they seem impossible. Verses 14 through 15 are just, they're they're beautiful and painful imagery. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my bones. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks in my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's giving us imagery because this is a song. And what songs do is songs allow us to feel information, right? And so he puts this. He doesn't just say, I'm anxious and I'm stressed out. He gives us imagery. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. What those poetic devices do is they allow us to start to feel this truth. We start to be able to feel the information. So the images here, the images of just feeling death coming in. Like life is being taken from me. You've been in this moment. I've been in this moment when it feels like you're just you're withdrawing from life. You like you don't even know how to be alive anymore. You can't even imagine what normalcy would look like if, if recovery is even possible. Like, this is where I am now. I'm in this low place, and I'm in this low place forever. Can I ever recover? There's so many ways that the distress of the why question gets to us. And so, first point of application is this. Uh, and these words kind of sound like, but I really mean it. It's okay to have a big boy or a big girl conversation with God. The Bible's relentlessly honest about how hard life is, and at times we can be prone to sappy Christianity that prevents us from dealing with who we really are and what real distress in our life really feels like. We feel like we're supposed to stuff it down, right? It's okay to have a real conversation with God about things in your life. And secondly, and this is yeah, it's part of the same point really, it's okay to be sad, y'all. It's okay to be sad. Nobody wants to admit they're sad. Because admitting that you're sad feels like maybe you're a failure, right? You did something wrong. You're not as strong as everybody else who's making it. Because you're supposed to be competent, especially because you're at Stanford, right? So you can't admit you're sad. Maybe admitting you're sad feels like you bring down other people, right? I don't want to lay this burden on other people. I'm the only sad one, right? You feel like you're the only one, that there's shame and kind of the neediness of being sad. It also feels like maybe if you say these kind of things and you come to grips with them, if you give voice to them, that you give them power, right? If I just don't say it and just let it buzz in the background, it'll disappear. People are, we're all especially prone to do this with family issues, with things within our family. Nobody wants to say, my parents have a bad marriage. Everybody wants to say, my parents have have a good marriage. Nobody wants to say they have a bad marriage. Nobody wants to say my parents were bad parents. Everybody wants to say they did their best, right? It feels like if you keep it bottled up and if you're, in a sense, really not truthful about it, then somehow it's less intense and it has less power, but the opposite's true. The first step to freedom is to put the junk out there and to deal with it. It's okay to be sad. But here's the problem. We still want an explanation. And that's what this text begins with. But God, why? So we're saying you can lay it all out there. We need to deal with it. The Bible gives us 
tools to begin to deal with it. But at the end of the day, we still want the explanation. So God, then why? You told me it's okay to be sad. I'm going to put it on the table. So why? Why this? And what he gives us here and he gives us in Scripture is the answer that we don't want, but we really need. It's the answer that we don't want, but we ultimately need. The Bible, a lot of times, doesn't give us the answers that we were initially looking for. And my friend, uh, Brian Habig, he's an old RUF campus minister, he made this point really well, and so I'm stealing most of this point from him. We love the notion that, like, okay, I'm going to take this junk, I'm going to put it out there, but here's what I want in return. I want to know that good's going to come from this bad, right? I want the explanation, God. I want you, this is what we love. I want to see how you're going to turn this tragedy into something beautiful in my life, right? We want someone to show us that all the hard things in life, they have this necessary and logical good end about how they're going to be turned around and turn out for everybody's good. And then, right, equipped with that explanation, then we can move on. Then the sorrow's eliminated, the grief's eliminated, the difficulty's gone away, and we can move on and move forward in life. We want to know that there's a fairy tale ending to this difficulty. You know? Here's how God's using it. Right? You failed the class because you were in the wrong major pursuing the wrong career, and you're going to find out your dream job in life. Okay, that's not necessarily true. You might have failed the class because you worked really hard and you just didn't have what it took to get through it, and you might slip into another major and find yourself in a career you're not happy with. You know that happens for a lot of people. You might have failed the class, and guess what? There might not be a fairy tale ending for your career. Your parents are leaving each other. Well, at least they can be happy now. Statistically, they probably won't be. Right? We want that fairy tale ending. Here's how God is going to turn out for good. He or she broke up with you, so now maybe now you're finally free to find the right one. I don't know. God, God doesn't make that promise. I can't. There's no fairy tale ending to that. It's guaranteed. It might happen. It might not. Here's an article that Brian. Uh, Habig pointed me to. It was written seven years after the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. That was in 1988 by a woman whose daughter died in that flight. And here's what she said. Her name's Susan Cohen. Her daughter's name is Theo. She said, Good coming out of evil is always a popular angle coming out of a story. If nothing else, victims can always be ennobled by tragedy, find a new meaning in life, growing and changing for the better. Cheer up, America. No matter how horrible things seem, the future is bright and tragedies are mere glitches on the road to happiness. On December 21st, 1988, I found out what a lie that is. My only child is dead, and for me, grief is constant and permanent. This is eight years later. Yes, the passage of time has helped. I get up every day, I go places, and I meet people, and I live my diminished life. But grief is always there. I'm in pain all the time. Theo, is her daughter, was an actress, so we shared the love of music and the love of plays. Music is now gone from my life, and I can't even walk by a theater. She's saying this, don't even try and tell me. Here's the good that came out of that situation, because that'll never change my sorrow from losing a child. She's saying, don't dare think a sappy, a sappy explanation is going to take away the pain of losing a child. Here's the point. An explanation actually will not dismiss our sorrow. We all think it will and we want one, but an explanation will not di uh, diminish or dismiss the sorrow. And actually, secondly, this is the really frustrating one, it's not our business. This is what we want. God, give me the explanation for this, right? All right, you said, 
You put this circumstance in my life, you've allowed it to happen. I hate it, it's painful, it defines me, I'm struggling with it. Now you've told me it's okay to put it on the table to deal with, right? And th- but this is how I want to deal with it. I want you to then explain to me how this is good for me. How you're going to turn this around and make it a fairy tale, right? Tell us how it's going to turn out for good. If I, and the belief underneath that is, if I have that explanation, then that will erase the sorrow and the grief. One of my college roommates, Finley, had his first daughter. In the process of her being born, the doctor accidentally shut off the air supply to his newborn girl's brain. Permanently damaged her brain. He will never have a conversation with his daughter. He will change her diapers her entire life. He will feed her her entire life. That's the story. For you to go to Finley and say, well... God gave you this child so that you could minister to other people with disabled children. And for you to think that eliminates the sorrow that he and his wife goes through, that's thin, that's insensitive, and that's cheap. It's offensive is what it is. We think an explanation is going to wash away the sorrow. And that's just naive. It really is. And within Scripture, so it doesn't dismiss the sorrow, and secondly, it's not our business. Within Scripture, Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says, hey, there are hidden things that belong to me. But the things God revealed do belong to us. Their hidden things we'll never know. We think there were enough time and resources, and if we pray really hard and we try to be really pious, that we kind of have the right to demand and, and, and figure out the explanation. And the Bible says no. There are things you're never going to understand. Hidden things that are God's alone. Paul says they're unsearchable and they're inscrutable. And what that means is no matter how, my heart, how much you search, no matter how hard you scrutinize, you won't find the answer because if God hides it, guess what? We can't find it. Job is a terrifying book. It's interesting until you have real tragedy and then it's terrifying because it's this man who suffers more than probably anybody in this room will ever suffer. He loses everything and he tries to stay faithful for a while but eventually he says why and it's terribly difficult to deal with Job because this is how God responds. And it's chapter after chapter. He starts, he says, so you want to know why? And he says this, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, and I'll question you and you'll make it known to me. And then this is what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand it. Who determined... The width and the height of the earth, surely you know. These are God's words to him. Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow? And have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time when I'm going to bring them? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know when it's supposed to happen? Can you send forth lightning that the lightning may go and come and say to you, Here we are, God. Command us as you will. Okay, it's chapters of those kind of questions. When Job asks that simple question of why. And God doesn't meet us always that way, but he's making this point. And this is a point that nobody, we none of us instinctively think is offensive, but actually is probably the most offensive thing in the Bible. God's making the point of, hey, I'm God and you're not. He's God and we're not. He has his plans and he has his reasons and he's under no obligation to share them with us, even if we could, had the capacity to understand them. 
And when we feel anger and indignation behind our question of why, like, God, you owe me, that's pride that's saying, I'm capable and I'm knowledgeable and I'm autonomous and I'm rational and I deserve an explanation from God. God, I don't answer to you. You answer to me. The hidden things are His. He's God and we're not. And that's why Job, for chapters, he just says over and over again, now tell me, Job, where were you? And so this is our dilemma, right? This is the frustration. So we, we know God is good, right? That's the foundation of all of Scripture. And yet He hasn't given us the explanation we want. And so our question is this, how can it be good for me to not have that explanation? If God is good and He's not giving us the explanation we want to the hard things in life, how can it be for my good for God to not give me that explanation? Nothing's given to David here. Right? There is no, David, here is my plan when I allowed your son to rape your daughter. That's not what's given right here. There's, in a sense, there's not really an answer offered by David. There's not one offered in your roommate situation. Why am I in this roommate situation? It's not offered. Your family situation, your illness. And this is the frustrating thing. How can it be for my good for me not to know your explanation, God? And God gives us not the answer we want, but He gives us the answer we need. And the first thing is this. The first thing He tells us in the midst of all of this, He says, in the midst of this cry, begin to remember remember again. Because interlaced all throughout this cry, verse 3 through 5, yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and they were rescued and you they trusted and were not put to shame. The Jews' identity and their relationship with God was very rooted in constantly remembering the very specific historic moments in which God delivered them. The exodus from Egypt. All the different ways throughout the book of Judges in which they were delivered from themselves and from their enemies throughout the kings. And that's what David's referring to. He's remembering all those historical moments. So the first thing he's pointing us to is saying, why, why, why? And God's saying, I'm not addressing that right off the bat, but remember this. Remember the past. Remember ways I have been faithful. Remember ways I have been good. And then in verses 9 through 11, he goes from God's kind of corporate goodness to all of God's people to a very specific day, God's goodness to him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You've made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth from a mother's womb. You've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. So he goes from this big picture of God historically being faithful to his people to also, and God, you were faithful to me. You pursued me from the beginning, from my birth remembering is a huge part of life and faith. Panic and desperation and anxiety and frustration and suffering all make us prone to forget. And remembering is often a part of healing. But there's a vital distinction here. David distresses and he remembers God's faithfulness. And oftentimes what we're prone to do in our distress is to reflect on our own faithfulness in our own life. What we've done and what we plan to do to fix it We need to remember, rather, who God is. What we need in these circumstances is not to reflect on our own world power. We need to remember who God is, His character, what He's done in the past. And kind of a a silly illustration, but one nonetheless is getting splinters out for my girls. In our house, it's like battlefield amputation is what it 
basically, they go through the same emotional place that Battlefield Amputee. No offense if y'all are siblings with Battlefield Amputee, but I'm telling you, it's messy. Because um, we have to get the needle and the tweezers, and they're little girls, and they've been, and we've done it when they were really little, and they don't know what's going on, and they really don't understand what's going on, and they even, in the midst of the pain, they really do this. They really ask why. Like, why are you doing this, Daddy? Like, it's the worst feeling in the world when you have to bring pain to your child's life, and you know you actually can't explain to them why. They just don't have the critical faculties of saying, like, because when I stick this needle in your finger, it grabs the thing and it gets it out. They're, it's terrible. The only way we can get them through that is, I'm your daddy. Remember, remember, all that I, I'm trying to do all that I can to care for you and love you. Like I'm the same dad that feeds you and tickles you and laughs with you and watches Tangled with you, you know? Just to remember who I am. It's the only way she can get through it. And even then, it's terribly distressing. But the reminder to remember is not everything that God gives us. He gives us more. In 19 through 21, even after remembering, the pleas are still there, but God, still don't be far off. You're my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. So he's reflected and he's remembered and he's still crying out, save me from the mouth of the lion. Right? It's still this desperate plea. Maybe a little bit less desperate, but still pretty desperate. And then this is the hard part about this text. I don't know if you picked up on it while I was reading it. Is verses 22 through 31 are praise. Like effusive, joyous praise. Right? On the heels of this desperation, David breaks out into praise. And, and you should feel the tension. How can that happen? Right? You didn't give me an answer to why. And it might, you might even maybe rightly feel, and it would be good to struggle with this, that's almost offensive. Nobody can relate to that. This is the sappy, sentimental Christianity that pretends like everything's right, that lives in an ivory tower, and is ill-equipped to deal with harsh realities that I hate, right? Unless you're horribly or deluded or in denial about life, how can you go from saying, why, 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 yeah, remember that you were faithful, but why, be here with me, to then just breaking out into praise? It says, so praise God because He's heard us. Right? You who fear the Lord, praise Him. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. He hasn't despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He hasn't hidden His face from them. He has heard. Right? How do we get there? How do we get to the second half of this psalm? This is how. Two months ago, a woman named Shelby, who our daughter's named after, and who was basically Elizabeth's grandmother. She's not blood-related, but she functioned as Elizabeth's grandmother. Uh, she died after a messy bout of cancer. Here's my question. What do you think was more comforting? Me trying to come up with a reasoned explanation or me just embracing Elizabeth? Right? Mary Walton... One of my seven-year-olds has been struggling with her teacher in school. Their personalities just don't go well together. Um, and, and if any of y'all met Mary, she's adventurous, she's happy, she's confident, she's a leader. And like her spirit has just been sapped by her interaction with her teacher. And she literally, she gets so down about it, and she literally says, she asks me and Elizabeth all the time, why? Like, why do Miss me and, Kiyohara, Miss and me, me and Miss Kiyohara not get along? Here's my question. Do you think walking her through personality differences helps her? Or do you think me laughing with her 
and playing with her and snuggling with her helps her. She actually wanted an answer. She asked for the why. But she just needed me. She needed my attention and my embrace and my laughter and my time. What we need in distress, what we think we want is an explanation, but what we need in distress is a person. And that's exactly what's given in this psalm and what's given in life by God. Not so much an explanation as a person. And the key and the missing link and the thing that God has chosen to reveal to us, right, that's been clearly displayed is when you hear this psalm repeated later in Scripture. Because it's repeated in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15 by Jesus when He's on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22. Maybe you heard it and then you realize you were familiar with it. Jesus says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hasn't revealed the wise to us. But what we're called to do is look at what He has revealed. What He has made known to us. And we need to give attention to that. And this is how John, who walked with Jesus, talks about God's revelation. Right? What He has made known. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, it was revealed. We have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too will have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The secret things are hidden with God. But what He's made manifest to us, what John's talking about here, is Jesus. He didn't give us an explanation. He gave us what we need. He gave us a person. And so your question for God, that you should ask, and He gives us the right to ask, God, what about the loneliness? And He doesn't give you an explanation. He's saying, I came and I was lonely too. God, what about betrayal? All of us have experienced and will experience betrayal. We will lose close friends. It's going to happen. And not just to bad circumstances, we're going to lose them to betrayal. He doesn't give you an answer. Why did this happen in my life? He came and he was betrayed. What about losing friends to death? He came and he wept because he lost friends. What about poverty? He came and he was poor. What about alienation? He came and he was alienated. God, what about... All the different people that suffer unjustly, right? The innocents, right? Who die unjustly. He doesn't answer that question. He comes and he suffers unjustly. And he dies unjustly. He's the victim. And I want to suggest, and I recognize we feel a rub to this, no doubt. What is more comforting to you? A God who gives an explanation... An explanation wouldn't have helped Elizabeth and an explanation didn't help Mary. Or a God who comes and lives in the pain with us. Elizabeth needed me with her. Mary Walton just needed my face. Right? And this is why Jesus is called Emmanuel. That word means God with us. The God who chose to lay aside His power and His glory and suffer loneliness and suffer hunger and suffer poverty and suffer betrayal and suffer all the situations that we hate about our life. 
He's the God that came to be with us and in us. We don't need a God who's going to explain himself to us. What we need is a God who can come and get in this mess with us and save us from it. That's what we need. And Easter season is a time we should always be reading Isaiah 53 when Jesus is described before he's even born. And it's kind of, this is one of those things, every now and then we need to relearn to be shocked that we're describing a deity in these verses. What kind of religion would ever describe its deity this way? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. You know we're calling our God a man of sorrows. We're calling our God a man acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We're saying people didn't esteem our God. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever thought to describe the deity that way? You know, we don't need an explanation. And it wouldn't help us. We've got to be realistic about life. Okay? About this earth. It's broken. It's jacked up. It's cursed. That's the biblical language. You might lose your best friend. Bad things might really happen in close relationships in college, and it could be really painful, and there might not be a fairy tale ending. You might be lonely for a lot longer than you are now. Someone you know might find out they have cancer. Your family may fall apart. There are going to be more Joseph Conies. There's going to be more Idi Amin's. There's going to be more war. There's going to be more starvation and poverty, and more children are going to get hurt. We need to be aware of that, even though we live in this bubble. The world is cursed, and what Jesus came to do is not just be empathetic. He didn't just come to live in the curse with us. He came to bear the curse, to actually have it placed on his shoulder, to swallow up the curse in him, to absorb it, to put the cursedness of this life and this existence and this earth to death in him. And he does it in order to make things back into the way that our hearts are screaming they should have always been. He does it to make things back into the way that what's happening in our hearts, the disconnect and the dissonance we feel with this life, is our hearts saying it wasn't supposed to be this way. And Jesus is making it back the way it was supposed to be. And he's doing it by not just living in the dark and the curse with us, but absorbing it at the cross. That's why in Revelation 21, the picture of the consummation of the resurrection is a world not in which there's an answer to all the whys, but a world in which we no longer ask those questions. Where there aren't tears, and there's no weeping, there's no more reason to ask why. So what are we supposed to do? Close briefly with a couple of point applications. First thing is this, take your whys to Jesus, and see that he gives you something far better than an explanation, and stop making up explanations. I've done it, I know all of us do it, Let's stop making up explanations. It's not helpful. It gives us false hopes. And recognize that he gives us something far better than an explanation, and the explanation didn't help. He comes into the cursedness, and he comes into the brokenness, and he absorbs it. We don't need an explanation. What we need is a Savior, and that's what he offers us. So where does that leave us? What are we supposed to do with that? Here's the annoying application nobody wants to admit. 
Oh, that's just one of the reasons we hate church. <sighs> Part of what it means is go to church. <sighs> Who wants to say that in a campus ministry, right? It feels so uncool. Go to church. Not because we're legalistic and moralistic. Yes, there's a lot of social baggage and cultural baggage about people being moralistic and legalistic about church attendance. Okay, screw that for a second. Who cares that other people have abused this, right? Go to church because what church is is gathering on the resurrection day, the day that Jesus was rose again from the day, from the dead, and it's about God's people getting together and saying, I cannot wait for the resurrection. Because that is the fairy tale ending that is real and is true and is at the end. And we don't have a lot of explanation of how we get from here to there. But that's what church is. Y'all, church is the best thing we get to do. That's such not a cool thing to say at a college campus. We're not, we're trying not to be cool, are you? I mean, we try to be cool, but we're not good at it. But, um, oh man, go and anticipate the resurrection with God's people. It is a privilege, it's a joy. Yes, there are idiots that are moralistic about telling us to go. But Sunday is when we gather together and we remind each other in the midst of the sorrow of this life, in the midst of the whys that we still live through, that that little thing in us that crying, that it's not supposed to be this way, is that voice is right and true. And God's making all things new again. And so Sunday is us getting together at the beginning of every week and getting excited about the resurrection. So take your eyes to Jesus, anticipate the resurrection, and be with God's people. We need each other. You can't do this alone. You need to be reminded of Jesus' grace by other people. You need, you need to have somebody look you in the face and tell you the promises of God. I need to have people look me in the face and tell me the promises of God. We need to laugh together. We need to sing together and we need to play together. We need to be honest with each other. We need to carry burdens together. The reason that we're having an Easter brunch is not because it's like some event to grow RUF or something like that. It's because it's Easter Sunday and God's people should have a meal together and laugh a lot and overeat. That's why we're having it. And we're having bad food. This terrible for you. Because that's what God's people should do in the resurrection is have fried chicken and sweet tea. It's going to be a lot of carbs and a lot of sugar and Jesus loves it. We're having an Easter brunch, y'all, because God's people should do that. We should laugh together on the day of the resurrection. So come with us. Bring other people. I know not everybody in here feels connected. You feel like there are group, friend groups that you're not a part of. Okay, whatever. For friend groups to begin to happen, we've got to start somewhere. Don't be too lazy. Man, if y'all eat in one of these lame campus cafeterias on the resurrection day, man, like, don't ever come back to RUF. Okay, you can really come back to RUF, but you get what I'm feeling right now, right? And if it's not our house, that's fine. Go somewhere else, man. Be with God's people on the best day of the year, for real. We need each other. It takes time for fellowship to happen. You won't feel right at home quickly. Actually, you'll feel at home pretty quickly. My girls make people feel at home, but... Man, start on the path of letting the body of Christ minister to you, and also you have a lot to minister to us. That's not the answer we're looking for to the why questions of life, but I think God's giving us something far better. And it's beautiful the way Psalm 22 ends. He's crying out for God to see, for for us to be able to see the righteousness of God. God, show that you are righteous. And he'll love the last verse. He has done it. And he's done it. Let's pray.